Chapter 38 Prince of Babylon, Knight of the Black Cross, Knight of Death, Sublime Master of the Luminous Ring, Priest of the Sun, Grand Architect, Knight of the Black and White Eagle, Holy Royal Arch, Knight of the Phoenix, Knight of Iris, Priest of Eleusis, Knight of the Golden Fleece. High Grades of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite We walked along the corridor, climbed three steps, went through a frosted glass door, and abruptly entered another universe. The rooms I had seen so far were dark, dusty, with peeling paint, but this looked like a VIP lounge at an airport. Soft music, a plush waiting room with designer furniture, pale blue walls decorated with photographs showing gentlemen who looked like members of Parliament presenting winged victories to gentlemen who looked like senators. On a coffee table, as in a dentist's office, were slick magazines, in casual disarray, with titles like Literature and Wit, The Poetic Athenor, The Rose and the Thorn, The Italic Parnassus, Free Verse. I had never seen any of them before, and I later found out why. They were distributed only to minutious clients. At first I thought these were the offices of the Garamond directors, but I soon learned otherwise. This was another publishing firm entirely. The Garamond lobby had a little glass case, dusty and clouded, displaying the latest publications, but the books were unassuming, with uncut pages and sober gray covers imitating French university publications. The paper was the kind that turned yellow in a few years, giving the impression that the author, no matter how young, had been publishing for a long time. But here the glass case, lighted inside, displayed minutious books, some of them open to reveal bright pages. They had gleaming white covers, sheathed in elegant transparent plastic, with handsome rice paper and clean print. Whereas the Garamond catalogue contained such scholarly series as Humanist Studies and Philosophia, the minutious series were delicately poetically named The Flower Unplucked, Poetry, Terra Incognita, Fiction, The Hour of the Oleander, including Diary of a Young Girl's Illness, Easter Island, assorted non-fiction, I believe, New Atlantis, the most recent release being Königsberg Revisited, prolegomena to any future metaphysics presented as both a transcendental system and a science of the phenomenal noumenon. On every cover was the firm's logo, a pelican under a palm tree, with the Danunzian motto, I have what I have given. Belbo had been laconic. Signor Garamond owned two publishing houses. In the days that followed I realized that the passageway between Garamond and Minutius was private and secret. The official entrance to Minutius Press was on Via Marchese Gualdi, the street in which the purulent world of Via Sincero Renato, ceded to spotless facades, spacious sidewalks, lobbies with aluminum elevators. No one could have suspected that an apartment in an old Via Sincero Renato building might be joined by a mere three steps to a building on Via Marchese Gualdi. To obtain permission for this, Signor Garamond must have had to perform feats of persuasion. I believe he had help from one of his authors, an official in the City Planning Bureau. We were received promptly by Signora Grazia, bland and matronly, her designer scarf and suit the exact color of the walls. With a guarded smile she showed us into an office that recalled Mussolini's. The room was not so immense, but it suggested that hall in the Palazzo Venezia. Here, too, there was a globe near the door, and at the far end the mahogany desk of Signor Garamond, 
who seemed to be looking at us through reversed binoculars. He motioned us to approach, and I felt intimidated. Later, when de Gubernatis came in, Garamond got up and went to greet him, an act of cordiality that enhanced even more the publisher's importance. The visitor first watches him across the room, then crosses it himself, arm in arm with his host, and as if by magic the space is doubled. Garamond waved us to seats opposite his desk. He was brusque but friendly. Dr. Belbo speaks highly of you, Dr. Kasabin. We need good men. You realize, of course, we're not putting you on the staff, can't afford it. But you'll be well paid for your efforts, for your devotion, if I may say so, because I consider our work a mission. He mentioned a flat fee based on estimated hours of work. It seemed reasonable for those times. I accepted. Excellent, Kasabin. Now that I was an employee, the title disappeared. This history of metals, he went on, must be splendid. More, a thing of beauty. Popular, but scholarly, too. It must catch the reader's imagination. An example. Here in the first draft there is mention of these spheres. What were they called? Yes, the Magdeburg hemispheres. Two hemispheres which, when put together and the air is pumped out, create a pneumatic vacuum inside. Teams of draft horses are hitched to them, and they pull in opposite directions. The horses can't separate the hemispheres. This is scientific information, but it's special. It's picturesque. You must single it out from all the other information, then find the right image, a fresco, an oil, whatever, and we'll give it a full page in color. There's an engraving I know of, I said. You see? Bravo! A whole page, full color. Since it's an engraving, it'll have to be in black and white, I said. Really? Fine. Black and white it is. Accuracy above all. But against a gold background. It has to strike the reader, make him feel he's there on the day the experiment was carried out. See what I mean? Science, realism, passion. With science you can grab the reader by the throat. What could be more dramatic than Madame Curie coming home one evening and seeing that phosphorescent glow in the dark? Oh, my goodness, whatever can that be? Hydrocarbon? Oconda? Phlogiston? Whatever the hell they called it— and voila, Marie Curie invents X-rays. Dramatize, but with absolute respect for the truth. What connection do X-rays have with metals? I asked. Isn't radium a metal? Yes. Well, then, the entire body of knowledge can be viewed from the standpoint of metals. What did we decide to call the book, Belbo? We were thinking of something sober, like metals. Yes, it has to be sober. But with that extra hook... That little detail that tells the whole story, let's see. Metals, a world history. Are there Chinese in it, too? Yes. Ah, world, then. Not an advertising gimmick, it's the truth. Oh, wait, I know. The wonderful adventure of metals. It was at that moment Signora Grazia announced the arrival of Commendatore de Gubernatis. Signor Garamond hesitated, gave me a dubious look. Belbo made a sign, as if to say I could be trusted. Garamond ordered the guest to be shown in and went to greet him. The gubernatis wore a double-breasted suit, a rosette in his lapel, a fountain pen in his breast pocket, a folded newspaper in his side pocket, a leatherette briefcase under his arm. "'Ah, my dear commendatore,' Garamond said. "'Come right in. Our dear friend de Ambrosis told me all about you. A life spent in the service of the State, and a secret poetic vein, yes?' Show me, show me the treasure you hold in your hands. But first let me introduce two of my senior editors. 
He seated the visitor in front of the desk, cluttered with manuscripts, while his hands, trembling with anticipation, caressed the cover of the work held out to him. Not a word. I know everything. You come from Vitipeno, that great and noble city. You were in the customs service, and secretly, night after night, you filled these pages, fired by the demon of poetry. Poetry! It consumed Sappho's young years, it nourished Goethe's old age. Drug, the Greeks called it, both poison and medicine. Naturally, we'll have to read this creation of yours. I always insist on at least three readers' reports, one in-house and two from consultants, who must remain anonymous, you'll forgive me, but they are quite prominent people. Minutius doesn't publish a book unless we're sure of its quality, and quality, as you know better than I, is an impalpable. It can be detected only with a sixth sense. A book may have imperfections, flaws. Even Savevo sometimes wrote badly, as you know better than I. But by God, you still feel the idea, rhythm, power. I know. Don't say it. The moment I glanced at the incipit of your first page, I felt something. But I don't want to judge on my own. Though time and again, ah, yes, often, when the reader's reports were lukewarm, I overruled them, because you can't judge an author without having grasped, so to speak, his rhythm. And here, for example, I open this work of yours at random, and my eyes fall on a verse. As in autumn the wan eyelid. Well, I don't know how it continues, but I sense an inspiration. I see an image. There are times you start a work like this with a surge of ecstasy, carried away. Cheladit, my dear friend, ah, if we could only always do what we like. But publishing, too, is a business, perhaps the noblest of all, but still a business. Do you have any idea what printers charge these days, and the cost of paper? Just look at this morning's news, the rise of the prime rate on Wall Street. Doesn't affect us, you say? Ah, but it does. Do you know they tax even our inventory? And they tax returns, the books I don't sell. Yes, I pay even for failure such as the calvary of genius unrecognized by the Philistines. This onion skin, most refined of you, if I may say so, to type your text on such thin paper, it smacks of the poet. The typical clod would have used parchment to dazzle the eye and confuse the spirit, but here is poetry written with the heart. This onion skin might as well be paper money. The phone rang. I later learned that Garamond had pressed a button under the desk, and Signora Grazia had sent through a fake call. My dear maestro! What? Splendid! Great news! Ring out, wild bells! A new book from your pen is always an event. Why, of course, Minutius is proud, moved, more thrilled to number you among its authors. You saw what the papers wrote about your latest epic poem? Nobel material? Unfortunately, you are ahead of your time. We had trouble selling the three thousand copies. Commendatore de Gubernatis blanched. Three thousand copies was an achievement beyond his dreams. Sales didn't cover the production costs. Take a look through the glass doors, and you'll see how many people I have in the editorial department. For a book to break even nowadays, I have to sell at least ten thousand copies. And luckily I sell more than that in many cases, but those are writers with—how well, shall I put it?—a different vocation. Balzac was great, and his books sold like hotcakes. Proust was equally great, but he published at his own expense. You'll end up in the school anthologies, but not on the stands in train stations. <laughs> the same thing happened to Joyce, who, like Proust, published at his own expense. I can allow myself the privilege of bringing out a book like yours, 
once every two or three years. Give me three years' time. A long pause followed. An expression of pained embarrassment came over Garamond's face. What? At your own expense? No, no, it's not the amount. We can hold the costs down. If well, But as a rule, Minutius doesn't... Well, of course, you're right. Even Joyce and Proust. Of course, I understand. Another pained pause. Very well, we'll talk about it. I've been honest with you, and you're impatient. Let's try what the Americans call a joint venture. They're always way ahead of us, the Yanks. Drop in tomorrow, and we'll do some figuring. Oh, my respects and my admiration. Garamond seemed to wake from a dream. He rubbed his eyes, then suddenly remembered the presence of his visitor. Oh, forgive me. That was a writer, a true writer, perhaps one of the greats. And yet, for that very reason, sometimes this job is humbling, if it weren't for the vocation. But where were we? Ah, yes, I think we've said everything there is to be said now. I'll write you, hmm, in about a month. Please leave your work here. It's in good hands. Commendatore de Gubernatis went out, speechless. He had set foot in the forge of glory.